Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel 30 and 31. We're going to finish up this book. And the last time we saw the failures of both King Saul and David, but both handled their failures differently. And tonight we'll see the tragic end of King Saul because of his refusal to submit to God, but hope for David because he turns back to God. And listen, life is fraught with failures. None of us are perfect. We are sinners. Um, Even if we're the best at our field, we still make mistakes. And we'll just talk about failures and, you know, how how we move past those failures. There's a right way and a wrong way. But we're going to jump in, starting with verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. And they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Then David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David, we know, previously raided the Amalekites, and um, there might have been a revenge issue here. Um, you know, the Amalekites now go and they raid, and it does appear from the scripture that they not only raided the children of Israel, but they also raided the Philistines. These are some pretty bad dudes. But even in David's worst times, the Lord still had mercy. He was there for David when he was ready to turn back and really start walking strong again. And you know, it's the same way with us. We get off track, we do things, we fail, we make mistakes, we sin. We get self-deceived and become part of something that maybe we shouldn't. But God is always waiting for us to turn around. David's no better than us, wasn't loved any more than he loves us. And that is always available to us. In verse 6, it says, The people spoke of stoning David, meaning stoning him to death. Maybe they thought, well, we should have been out here in the first place. Shouldn't have been out hanging with the Philistines. This was a bad idea. Although 600 of them followed him. (laughs) And they would have been right, but killing their leader now was, was an even worse idea, especially since he's the Lord's anointed. And Moses went through this, and other leaders in the Bible. Sometimes those being led have no tolerance for mistakes or lapses in judgment. You know, there's a, a term that we use in ministry, uh, grace up and grace down, for lack of a better word. Everybody wants their pastors and elders, ministry leaders, to show them grace. Hey, cut me some slack. I'm only human. But you know what? Grace has to go up as well. (laughs) Sometimes we forget that. The other extreme is showing too much grace to a leader whose incompetence is the rule, not the exception. I think about the scandal in the church with the pedophilia issues and not correcting it and then protecting those ministers who have done these horrible things 
and not reporting them to the authorities. What's really neat now, and as I agree with them, they're starting to sue those that are way up top who turn a blind eye to this or actively help to shuffle these ministers around uh, so law enforcement doesn't catch up to them. So that's just dumb loyalty and blind, and, and that shouldn't be either. So you see those two extremes. But in verse 7, instead of acting, David consults God. Things are getting out of hand quickly. Certainly a humbling experience. Imagine yourself in his situation. They get there, everything's burned. They don't know if their relatives are still alive. They don't know what's going on. You know, their, their livestock is taken. Their uh, living quarters, I guess, are burned to the ground. And, and it's, it's got to be a frightening sight. Let's not just read the Bible, but put ourselves into the situation of those who are coming into Ziklag, seeing the smoke still smoldering and saying, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. It must have taken a lot of self-control to just wait and seek the Lord instead of just taking action, especially since the people wanted to stone him. Right? And this is what I would call a Ziklag moment, and we'll talk more about that. Sometimes we have Ziklag moments in our lives, and we wonder, What's, Lord, why? What's going on? quite possible that the Lord is saying, I keep trying to talk to you, but you're not listening to me. But it, it all turns out for the good. Verse 9. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary they could not cross the brook Besor. Then he found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites, in the territory which belongs to Judah, and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. So David and his men are pursuing the Amalekites. It's a tough journey. I looked on my little Bible map and saw where they had to go, and you know they couldn't just get into the van the SWAT team van and go after these guys. It was, a, it was quite a trip. It was quite harrowing. And 200 of the 600, they just can't go any further. It's too much. They can't take another step. They need to rest. So the 400 go ahead. They run into an Egyptian who was probably taken captive by the Amalekites. They made him a servant. And he was part of the raiding party that burned Ziklag. So David gets a real break here. Now, just a little geography. They go from Ziklag, which is the southern portion of Israel. It wasn't divided into two kingdoms yet. Uh, and they're going southwest as you go towards Egypt. You have to cross the Brook Besor, and then there's Amalek's territory right before you get into Egypt. So just for the little geography. Verse 16. So when he had brought them down, there, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David attacked them from twilight unto the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken away 
carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and the herds which they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. 400 of the Amalekites escaped. We know that King Saul didn't utterly wipe out the Amalekites. Here, 400 end up escaping again. These guys keep weaseling out uh, of judgment. Now, if the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh, what it shows is that, especially with the history of the Amalekites, that on this side of eternity, we never completely get rid of the power of the flesh. And to varying degrees, we try to subdue it. And we have to subdue it. We're to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. But it's our decision which will follow. Now, David is mandated by God. He says, go, overtake them. You know, the the victory will be yours. Uh, And that may be a picture of the work of the spirit in us, uh, if we're looking at this in a spiritual sense, where God wants to give us victory over the flesh. That's his desire. And he gives us the help to do that. If we ask you know, uh, of, of the things of the Spirit, what would he not give us? Even Jesus said, if you ask of the Holy Spirit, you, know, it's, you can have as much as you want in a sense. So we see this in the event that David recovers not only what was taken, but even more in addition. And that's the victorious Christian life. You know, it's amazing what God will do if we just ask him. You know, if we just want to be a part of that. So many believers don't ask. You know, verse 21. Now, David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand, the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies, and they shall share alike." And so it was from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So this group of men in David's, you know, 600 or the 400 that went forward, they do not want to give any of the spoil to the 200 that were exhausted, that stayed behind. The Bible refers to them as wicked and worthless, most likely really referring to the part of them that was greedy. These guys were greedy and greed was at the heart of it. And we can ask some questions. Why did David even have these guys in his ranks? Well, maybe it wasn't revealed to him at the time. Two, maybe David knew it, but he tried to win them over. Three, maybe they were only wicked and worthless in this particular instance. Maybe greed got the better of them. Or four, maybe it just was he had a group of rebels following him. Remember, when David had his, you know, little by little his ranks are starting to grow... Um, maybe a lot of them came with David because they were just rebellious by nature. They didn't like things under King Saul, and they figured that David was an opportunity for them to uh, rebel against King Saul. Or maybe 
They were great warriors, and David didn't think he could win the battles without them. Maybe we can interject the Gideon principle here. Maybe instead of 600, should have had 300. We don't know. It's just speculation. But is there a lesson in here for us when we think about our own lives, when we think about relationships? I constantly run into people, even believers, who think or who have these relationships that are unedifying. Boyfriend, girlfriend situation, best friend situation, a situation where somebody else is dragging you down, and they really believe in their heart. They're so afraid of cutting off that friendship, but it's really something that's leading them down the wrong path. And that happens. Uh, even in ministry, you know, we have to look at it as, do we want the best, brightest, and talented to be in ministry? Or do we want people with a heart after God? I think it's the latter. I can tell you, I've gotten myself into trouble, eight years of being a senior pastor, of making poor assumptions because somebody has talent that this would be a good fit and it doesn't work out and I pay for it. So I think I've come to the point in my life where my attitude is I don't need anybody. It's nice to have those that come around and lift my arms. Believe me, I love the team that we have. But the other, the other principle is God doesn't need me. <laughs> it keeps everything in perspective. Uh, we also need to make sure we don't get to the point where we think that we're, you know, we're not expendable. We are. Uh, just like King Saul. He was the leader of Israel. But eventually God took him out because his pride got the better of him. So relationships. Here's the deal. Let me just boil it down of all the things that I said. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us to have heroes of the flesh. We see that all the time. You know, God made us relational creatures, but the primary relationship must be with us and our God. Sometimes we hold too tightly to other people. God wants to be our hero. And I'll tell you this, in my life, when there were those that I might have clung to because I thought it would make the go easier for me, or in my heart, I felt that I needed them, God separated those relationships every time. He wants to be your hero. No man or woman is to be your hero. Well, and that's, that's hard, even for believers. But God is forever loyal. Even when mother and father forsake us, the Bible says, the Lord will be with us right, be, right beside us. So there's some good lessons here. Verse 25, David made a fairness statute for the military. And basically he said that whether a person stays behind whether they're injured, whether they uh, are, are exhausted. However the battle goes, and if there's victory, it gets equally shared amongst all the soldiers, regardless of what their situation is. And I think that's a really fair statute, because we can look at these injured men, exhausted men, even today, post-traumatic stress disorder. Would it be fair for them not to get recognition and pay? Uh, and it's not fair. You know, David is trying to say here that might doesn't make right. Not only the strong survive, that's wrong. It's a Darwinian principle, even though he wasn't around back then. The Bible reflects fairness. And this took a lot of courage from David. He could have been grossly outvoted and outnumbered. But he said, no, this is the way it's going to be. So you really see a turnaround in David's life here, and Second Samuel bears that out. So it's really a neat thing for our, you know, our man to you know, start to you know, go where he needs to go. He's seeking God. He's, he's doing the right thing in the face of opposition. Uh, so we see a real uptick with David. Verse 26. 
Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. To those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aroer, those who are in Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoah, those who are in Rashal, those who were in the cities of Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormah, those who were in Chorishan, those who were in Athich, those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. That was tough. So these are the places David was accustomed to roam. Um, maybe this is a political move. Uh, we know that probably David wants to make sure in his heart that everybody's okay with him. Um, maybe in addition, this is just his way of saying thank you to those in the southern portion of Israel that, that helped him out or didn't hunt, hunt him down or didn't snitch on him to Saul or, or a combination of both. And you know what David is? He's a mixed bag. You know, David's a mixed bag. He was a man after God's own heart, but... There was times he was really righteous and he did everything the Lord wanted him to do. Then there were other times where he did evil but repented. And there were other times he did things in his own strength. And I think running to the Philistines was a prime example, thinking that fear, it's, it's right in the scripture, he was afraid that Saul eventually was going to catch up to him and kill him. The Lord wasn't doing it fast enough, so he had to help the Lord along a little bit. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can see a little bit of ourselves in his life. And before we point the finger at David, maybe we should look in the mirror. And that's a really good way to read the scripture, you know, uh, not to look at these actual people who messed up and go, oh, if I was there, it would have been a different result. Not necessarily, not necessarily. You know, I can find the truth is that when I look at David and some things in his life, uh, and there's things that I don't like, Maybe I don't like those things about myself, you know? And that's what we need to do as we read the Bible. These are just people like you and I. Different personalities, different gifts, different abilities, okay? And, but they're just like us. And sometimes when we don't like a characteristic in another person, we have to ask ourselves why we don't like that. Then we have to ask ourselves, do I ever do that? You know, these are important questions that we need to ask. Sometimes we're really on fire for the Lord. Sometimes we do things and make bad decisions and do things in our own strength because we feel that God is not moving fast enough. I can tell you that I have. I certainly have. It gets me in trouble. At times we completely blow it. But what do we do when we blow it? Well, here's what not to do. Mope. Look for sympathy. um, Wallow in a victim complex. And you see that in the world. You know, look at some of these ridiculous talk shows. Um, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to repent. You know, I've heard the term, that person's damaged goods. What are we, dented green bean uh, cans or something? Damaged goods? We're new creatures in Christ. You know, listen, God doesn't promise us an easy life. But he does promise us that we can walk in the spirit and newness of life, that fountains of living water can spring from inside of us. And, uh, you know, he promises us that we can be new creatures in Christ. So that's, that's where we, really, we need to go here. I don't see David having a pity party for himself. I see him picking himself at some point up 
praying, going, turning back to the Lord. Give me that ephod. I want to know what the Lord says because that's what I want to do. I'm tired of being living in this way anymore. It's got to stop. Chapter 31, verse 1. So the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mount Chishua, Saul's sons. Now the battle became intense against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. Alternate translation, and they torture me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that, saw that Saul was dead, tongue twister here, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Saw Saul sword. <laughs> Having a hard time tonight. So it's not a good day for the Israeli army. Uh, their leader, King Saul, was not in God's will. And these are the ramifications. Uh, no doubt the fear that Saul displayed, especially after God not answering him, going to the witch of Endor and uh, you know, Samuel rebuking him and all the events that happened. He must have been a, a basket case by this time. And he still leads the Israelite army into battle. And for a leader to be fearful, that's a big morale destroyer. If any of you have served in the military or been in a quasi-military organization like a police department, you'll know what I mean. You need your, your leaders to be with it. You know, they're leading you into a situation where you can lose your life. If a commanding officer uses good judgment, it's a good day. You'll go into any situation with them. If a commanding officer displays fear or instability, you wish you never came to work that day. I can tell you that. And, you know, transparency is good. But in times of trouble, we need the Lord. Leaders need the Lord. Otherwise, what are they doing? You know, the ramification of Saul's sins, and again, I love to just interject myself in this situation. Young men, um, in middle-aged men, were going off to battle. They were leaving their wives and their children, and because of Saul, a lot of fathers and husbands died in battle. You know, we got to look at this on a personal level. So leadership is important and how we lead others. Now, the action of the armor-bearer, he sees what happens to King Saul. He's probably terrified. And instead of running, he just kills himself. All right, the term fall on the sword is still used today. And just to make sure you, you really understand what I'm saying here. This, okay, it kind of looks like a sword. It's a machete. But in those days, literally, you would prop the sword up I mean that they're a lot longer, and you would literally put it up against your body and fall on the sword. So it kind of does this. Look, see? <laughs> Got to be careful. I don't really want to do it. I just want to explain it to you. The Japanese uh, harikiri is actually the proper term. Uh, it was developed many years later, but it had the same type of connotation. And today the expression just means, you know, even if you're in the business world, ah, you need to fall on the sword. And it just means you've got to take full responsibility no matter what happens. It's an interesting term, but there you have it. That actually did happen. 
because the invading army would capture you and they'd torture you. You know, they'd, there was no Geneva Convention. They could do whatever they wanted to you and torture you until you died, just because it was their good pleasure. So this is, this is what we're dealing with. Now, Jonathan dies. And I think by now you all know how much I love Jonathan here. He's a good man. He helped David, and he dies here. The plan was for Jonathan to rule by David's side. Well, now that's not going to be realized. And then we ask ourselves, so why did Jonathan take part in this battle? I have a few possibilities here. Maybe pity for his father, who was the king. Maybe love for his father. Or maybe loyalty to the king of Israel. His father had a dual role. He wasn't just his dad. And he actually opposed his father when he came to his father trying to kill David. So I'm not so sure if it was the first two, but check this out. Maybe it was loyalty to Israel in general because he was, he was a great military leader. We see some of the awesome um, you know, things that Jonathan did. And even early on, his father took credit for some battles that were won by his son. It was awful. So Jonathan may have thought, you know, they need me there. Uh, and I, I've got to be there. Maybe his presence was a morale booster in some respects. But I think this really shows what a good man Jonathan was. You know, it's easy to take part in a battle when you know you're on the winning side. Check this out. You ever try to take part in a battle knowing you're on the losing side? Well, that's not easy. Think about that. And this is, in, in essence, what Jonathan did. I mean, how many today run from every battle? Are we called to be quitters? You know, we're to pick and choose our battles, but I think that in our society, we're just taught that we can be lazy or we can be afraid or somebody else will pick us up. You know, that's not the generation three or four generations ago. Uh, so I, I have a lot of respect for Jonathan. Verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. How sad for those inhabitants. So it came to pass the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, their false gods, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. <laughs> Warfare was a lot different back then. You know, <laughs> you really had to consider whether you wanted to go to, to war, especially thinking if these, these, your opposing uh, army was really ruthless and what if you lost to them? So this is what they do. It's an awful ending to the book, but there's no candy coating of the historical fact. This is the way it was. The Israeli army is now leaderless, gripped with fear, running for their lives. And the Philistines are taking Israeli cities. Again, I just enjoy envisioning what it must have been like. So now the soldiers are not even protecting their own cities. And they fled, everybody for himself. And the Philistines come and probably enslave the inhabitants. And it's a miserable time for Israel. And the Philistines are a picture of sin. And sin will enslave us if we allow it to. If we're not joined up with the Lord to fight sin, it will take over and it will enslave us and it will hold us in bondage and it will make us useless. 
as a believer, it will make us useless for the kingdom for as long as we're caught in that enslaving sin. It's not a pretty picture. Evil and fear work hand in hand. And it's this vortex that just continued to spiral downward and out of control. And this is where Israel is. Evil will take as much ground as we allow it to in our lives, completely take away the victory from us. Not a good place to be. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. All right? It wasn't good when when I've been in it. And it's certainly not pretty when those come up to me and they, they said, this is my life, with their head in their hands. It's a sad thing to watch. It really is. Verses 9 and 10. Well, the Philistines are having a victory celebration. They're having a good old time. They're having a ticker tape celebration. Uh, They take King Saul's armor, put it in their pagan temples, and give credit to their false gods to their victory over Israel. And they fastened King Saul to the wall. They probably had his naked body with some type of device, and they would thrust it through and literally hang him, his headless body, to the wall in this particular city. How grotesque. Uh, So this is what's going on here. I want to read a scripture in 2 Samuel 12, where God says to David, speaking about his adultery with Bathsheba, and then his murder of her husband. And when it's finally found out, and the prophet Nathan uh, confronts him, he says this, by this deed, David, pretty much what he had done, You have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Therefore, your child will die. Heartbreaking. We're going to cover that. What about as believers when we give occasion to evil to rejoice? Let's just not look at this book. Tell you what, I put a post on Facebook today. It's a good-sized paragraph. And I said that Facebook and social media can be a tool to further the gospel or it can be a tool to detract from the gospel. It can be a tool of Satan. If I hear or I see one more post from a Christian woman who says that she went out to see Magic Mike, which is a show about strippers, I'm gonna scream, okay? I actually was gonna, I did my homework, I read about it, I was gonna look at the trailer, and the, the still shot was enough. I said, I don't need to look at the trailer. Men and women taking their clothes off, profanity, You know, when we talk about things that we should be ashamed of, we want to keep it hidden. We're living in a culture, a Western culture, where they just, people say what's ever on their mind, and they're not ashamed of it, and they call themselves Christians. It's scary. What we're doing is we're giving occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme him, to give them credit, to give them power, to feed them. And it's a shame. It's really a shame. And um, if you're not part of our Facebook site at the church, check it out, log on, it's under the group. Um, You can get into it, you can see the posts, we talk a lot about the messages and stuff, but as a pastor, it's frustrating. It is, I'm not angry with any particular person. People could do whatever they want, I'm not here to control anybody. But it bothers me that there's no shame anymore. You know, women don't want their husbands looking at pornography. How is it okay to go in the other direction? I got my wife's full support on this one. She's just as upset as I am. Stuff that Christians are posting, you know? (sighs) Find a Christian friend, if you're a new believer, that's mature. Stop hanging out with carnal people that are going to drag you down. Because it isn't just David and the adultery. We're doing the same thing today. 
in New Jersey, and it's disgraceful. Verse 11. I got so excited that I forgot where, what page I was on here. Verse 11. <laughs> and when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So the Gileadites removed the corpses of King Saul and his sons from the wall and gave them a dignified burial and risked their lives to do the, the right thing. Now, in 1 Samuel 11, the Ammonites were coming after these people and Saul kind of saved their skins. So there was a little gratitude there. They wanted to you know, risk their lives and remove the bodies from the wall, cremate them and give them a decent burial. Last two verses, and this is where there's a parallel scriptures in 1 Chronicles 10. 13 and 14. And the title of the caption is The Cause of Saul's Death. Verse 13, it says, So Saul died for, one, his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, also because he consulted a medium for guidance, and he did not, for, inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Our God is a holy God. We cannot forget that our God is a God of love and mercy and peace, but he's also a God of judgment. And I think sometimes in Western Christianity, we forget that. He's, he has dual nature to him, and it's a perfect balance. So why did Saul die in battle? And we can look at our lives too. Number one, he was unfaithful to the Lord. God often uses imagery for, the, for his people as he's a husband and we are his bride. So number one, unfaithfulness to the Lord. Number two, he did not keep the word of the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all in harmony when it comes to this. Three, for consulted the, the medium or the witch. They talk about insanity. For looking, because, well, God's not giving me an answer. So let me ask the demonic realm and maybe try to bring up my buddy Samuel and see if, you know, and it didn't go down like that, but that was the intention. And four, because he did not inquire of the Lord. Wow, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. We found one. Because it said a few chapters back that he did seek the Lord. Here's the answer. He didn't seek the Lord with his whole heart. King Saul sought the Lord because he knew he was in trouble. And he wanted to get out of trouble. He didn't seek him because he was repentant. Right? It took a ziklag to get David's attention. For him to see how far he was away from God and how powerless he was when he saw his village burning. It took a ziklag moment, is as I'm calling it. It took a Mount Gilboa to get King Saul's attention. Here's the deal. We can allow God to speak with us softly in that still, small voice. Sometimes he may have to use a ziklag or a Mount Gilboa. And in my old neighborhood, they would have said, he needed to get a two-by-four, but... <laughs> Apparently, the difference between King Saul and David is one was the surface response and one was truly from the heart. Obviously, David's was from the heart. And I guess my question is, what's it going to take to get our attention in certain matters in our lives? What's the current thing? What's the pending thing that the Lord is trying to speak to us softly about? But it may take a ziklag moment to get our attention. 
When we get in trouble, do we seek to just get out of trouble for the moment? Or do we really want to please God and turn from our sin? David repented and God restored and used him. King Saul lived a life of pretense, deception, and manipulation, and God destroyed him. David failed. He had a ziklag moment, but that ziklag moment brought him back into the loving arms of the Lord. It's that simple. (laughs) Failure is a part of life. Don't let anybody tell you or teach you that we can always be perfect because that's not true. Failure is a part of life. Failure is a part of leadership. I look back at my life and there's some things I say, man, I'll never do that again. (laughs) Well, I really got hurt in that situation. What is your ziklag moment? Failure is also a part of the Christian walk. I think once we accept it and understand that we will fail, it it gives us a better perspective check. We're not to be so overcome with grief. Even the man who was caught in adultery in 1 Corinthians, you know, when he repented, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians said, don't let the man be overcome with grief and guilt. Restore him. Don't keep reminding him he's truly repentant. Bring him back into the fold. Why is it so hard to repent? and be brought back into the fold, right? We know we're going to fail, but what do we do with our failures? We've talked a little bit about that. For King Saul, he responded the way Judas did, the wrong way. For David, the apostle Peter, they moved past the humiliation and turned back to the Lord and overcame. Question is, how will we respond in our zigzag moment? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that, that we get the benefit of seeing the failures of so many people where a lot of them had a lot limited examples because...